you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, and if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. This is the word of the Lord. Well, what is up, City on a Hill West? Um, if you haven't met me yet, my name's Albert. I'm an intern this year at West, and it is my joy and privilege to be going through this passage together with you. Uh, but before I go on, let me just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it is living and breathing and life-giving. And we pray that as we listen to your word together, your spirit will be moving in us, um, opening our hearts and our minds to the truth of your gospel. Um, and that as I speak, your spirit will be guiding my heart and my words, that, um, that my words wouldn't be my own, but they'd be yours. So we pray this for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, as Pastor Andy said yesterday, the next few weeks we'll be following Paul as he unpacks for us the resurrection of Jesus, its truth, historicity, and what it means for us today. Uh, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, addressing a whole variety of issues and topics, encouraging and convicting as he goes along. And chapter 15 marks for us the climax of this particular letter, as Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead. Uh, theologian Karl Barth reckons that the resurrection of the dead is the point from which Paul speaks, and the point to which Paul speaks. Uh, in other words, it's, it not only nicely finishes the letter, but runs deep through everything he says previously, tying all things together, flowing through his writings as a whole. Uh, the resurrection of the dead, Paul argues, is absolutely central to a right understanding of the gospel. Um, and before Paul goes on to unpack the resurrection of the dead, maybe it's worth asking the question, what is the gospel? Well, in Greek, the word is euangelion, which literally means good news, right? And long before it was utilized by the New Testament um, and Jesus himself, it was used by Rome to speak not of Jesus, but of Caesar uh, and the Roman Empire. Um, whenever there was a new ruler on the throne 
or maybe there was a victory somewhere in the empire, this euangelion, this good news, would be preached all over Rome. Um, you know, look how great this is. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. And these gospels at the time were used like propaganda, right, to prop up this image of Rome as the center of the world. Um, and so these gospels were just loads of information. Or, uh, and so these gospels weren't, weren't just loads of information or short me messages, uh, but they became a way of life. They became a story that people lived into. Um, the Gospel of Rome was a narrative of architecture, right, of culture, art, like the world had never seen before. Caesar and his glorious empire forever and ever. Amen. Um, still today, there are narratives that are told, Gospels that are preached from every corner, stories in which we live and move and have our being. Uh, the gospel of wealth, of capitalism, the gospel of sex and liberation from social constructs, uh, the gospel of education, the gospel of family uh, that tells you that all you need is 1.5 kids and a white picket fence. Um, for example, think of the gospel of Melbourne, of good sport, good food, good drink. The entertainment here is off the charts. The city is alive and full of culture. I mean, what more could you want? Um, well, for, for those of you who remember the time before coronavirus, Melbourne was rated the most livable city in the world a few years in a row. That's, that's good news, right? Um, well, at least that was good news, not anymore. And I mean, that's just the nature of these narratives. They're deeply flawed and harmful and deceiving. They promise and promise, but ultimately fail in the end. A few months ago, I had the privilege of being part of Alpha at Cedar Hill West, uh, which is an introductory course into Christianity, something I would definitely recommend if the way of Jesus is something you or someone you know even is thinking of exploring. Um, but it starts with this very question, right? Is there more to life than this? Is this where the story ends? With a job? With an orgasm? With a white picket fence? Or is there more? And so Jesus and the early church take this language, this use of the word um, evangelion amidst the gospels of their time and of our time to tell an even better narrative of an even greater king and an even greater kingdom. So Paul begins in verse 1. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Um, now, we don't know exactly what the Corinthians were doubting that made Paul write this letter. Some suggest that the Corinthians did not believe in human existence after death. Others suggest that for the Corinthians, this existence wasn't a physical one, so resurrection didn't really make sense. And others even suggest that the Corinthians just thought, you know, it's, it's too weird. We can't accept this, which is fair enough. Um, it's probably the case, as Luther suggests, that the Corinthians were facing all these different problems, which Paul aims to clear up for them. Uh, as to this gospel that was preached and that was received, Paul continues in verse 3, uh, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Um, now, Paul wants to make it clear at this point that what he's handing on 
that is the gospel, belief in the resurrection of Jesus, is not his own creation, but something he has received. Um, the only other time Paul uses this language of passing on something is when he speaks about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11 of this letter, saying, um, For I received from the Lord what, what I also passed on to you, that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and so on. Um, he's only passing on a tradition that has been passed to him. And that is this ancient creed that in verse 3, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Uh, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Um, we know from the way that this passage is worded and put together that this wasn't Paul's. Um, it's most likely part of the ancient oral tradition treasured by the church, the early followers of Jesus, that dates back probably to the 30s, right, to the time of Jesus. Um, these articles of faith, as some scholars put it, reveal to us what the church believed about the gospel even before this letter was written. And Paul presents it here as essentially the stripped back, right, fundamentals of gospel truth, as minimalist as you can get. That Christ died for our sins, was put to death on a cross, and was buried, just in case you thought he didn't really die. And for three days, right, just in case you really, really thought he didn't die. On the third day, he was raised from the dead, in accordance with the scriptures. Um, so we've got to remember that this, at, at this time, there was no New Testament. Right? The four, gospel, four Gospels were still being written uh, while Paul is writing to Corinth. And so the scriptures here refer to the Hebrew Bible, what we'd call uh, the Old Testament. Uh, these words remind us that this gospel that Paul is preaching, this narrative, finds its beginnings not in the New Testament, but in the Old, in the book of Genesis, right, with God and creation. Uh, in the book of Genesis, God speaks the heavens and the earth into creation, the entire universe, and everything is good and beautiful and in perfect harmony with himself and with each other. Uh, he makes humans in his own image, not just as another animal, but as a sort of dignified being, being um, put in dominion over his creation and to enjoy his glory, his presence. But very quickly, things go horribly wrong. Humanity turns against God in the Garden of Eden. And that perfect harmony, the shalom right, between God and his creation is broken. Um, keep in mind that this wasn't God's doing, right? This wasn't on his part. Because Adam and Eve run from God, who comes looking for them in the garden. And so this is where sin and death and decay enter the story. Uh, but still, right, instead of destroying everything at this point, God, in his love for what he has created, and in grace and mercy, promises that he will restore what was broken, and he decides that he'll do this through Abraham, the people of Israel. He establishes his covenant with these people, giving them his law, teaching them good from evil, wisdom from foolishness, truth from lies. He establishes the temple, uh, and a system of animal sacrifices where blood would be shed on behalf of the sins of Israel, 
Um, that way God in his holiness would be able to dwell among the Israelites. But still, this was not enough. Um, the Israelites still kick against God. They don't want him. They want a king. And even after warning the Israelites, God gives them a king, King Saul, who was just bad, right? King David was better, but still fell. And the pattern continues. Um, the Israelites decide they want judges to govern them. And so they get judges. And it starts off okay, but man, it just gets really bad really quickly. Judge after judge, running further and further away from God. And the pattern continues. Prophets prophesy about a Messiah who will one day come and restore Israel, and whose reign over them would be one of peace and healing and joy. The Israelites who 2,000 years ago were enslaved by the Romans uh, were still waiting for this Messiah to come and free them from their oppression. But far from coming with a great army to defeat the Romans and slay Caesar, Jesus comes as a poor Jewish rabbi, born and raised to a peasant refugee family and dies a shameful death. And so the narrative continues in verse 3. Um, Christ, which translates to Messiah in Hebrew, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so these affirmations form the absolute heart of the gospel, this narrative of God's redemptive work in creation. Um, that Jesus of Nazareth died for our sins, was buried, and not only that, but was resurrected. This was a hope like the world had never seen before. Um, most religions at this time had a cyclical view of life, that you live, you work, you die, and this goes on in one big circle. Um, this circle of life, as my favorite Disney animation puts it, was based primarily on what communities saw around them. So watching the seasons, watching the moon go round and round, the movement of the sun, sowing seeds, harvesting, you know, so on. Um, but the religion of Israel, this cult of the God Yahweh, introduced an understanding of the universe that wasn't cyclical, but linear. It was going somewhere. It was leading up to something. And so the gospel was this revolutionary narrative full of a hope that pointed to a God leading his people somewhere. Where? Right, to resurrection. Um, continuing the ancient creed, Paul writes that Jesus, having been raised from the dead, um, and we're at verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. In other words, if you're wondering whether he really was raised from the dead physically, ask any of these people. Jesus appeared to them in the flesh. Um, and so Paul wants to make this so clear to the church in Corinth and even to the church today that if we do away with the resurrection, then the gospel itself falls apart. Paul says rightly later in the chapter that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The reality of Jesus' resurrection within the narrative of the gospel is so important. 
because it's not just something great that happened to Jesus, you know, good for him. You must be really happy about that, you know, love that for you, Jesus. No, this is something that happened, um, that opened up a new dimension of human existence. Jesus, in being raised from the dead, has taken up our humanity into heaven. In the resurrection, humanity is remolded, right, into something completely new, flesh and blood, the same dirt that you and I are made of, taken into immortality. Right, um, Pope Benedict puts it this way, that it is essential that Jesus' resurrection was not just about some deceased individual coming back to life, but that an ontological leap occurred, opening up a new dimension that affects us all, creating for all of us a new space of life, a new space of being in union with God. This was something that the world had never seen before, something that happened in history, but then jumped out of history, something brand new, and so no wonder it moves beyond what we, all the Corinthians, can conceive and make sense of. I mean, it sounds like some edgy sci-fi stuff. Um, but this is hope, friends. Hope like no other. That the story of the gospel leads not to death, but to resurrected life. And that's not to say that there won't be suffering or pain. That's not to say that we won't die physically. I mean, the death rate of humans is pretty up there, 100%. Um, but as theologian David Garland puts it, while graveyards remind of the brevity of life, the resurrection ensures the brevity of death. The gospel is transformative. It's powerful. It's hope. Not just for you or me, but for all of creation. That one day there will be resurrection perfect relationship as it was in the Garden of Eden, where we aren't running from God anymore, where there's no virus that keeps us in our houses, uh, where there's no unemployment, where there's no need to protest anything, but because all will be made right. And friends, let me remind you, Paul is not speaking here of truths um, that must be accepted and submitted to for the sake of doctrine, though it is that. But it is more than that. It's a story in which we live and have our being. It's a living and powerful and transforming lives. As Paul continues taking the Corinthians through the narrative of the gospel, he continues in verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. In verse 8, untimely born in Greek, is the same word as an abortion or miscarriage. Um, some translations use the phrase abnormally born. Paul here highlights that the risen Jesus appeared even to him, this aborted fetus. He continues in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, 
though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul uses his own life to show the power of the gospel, to transform, who on the way to persecute Christians on, on the road was ambushed by the risen Christ, and far from silencing the gospel he had received, he's preaching it, he's passing it on. Maybe the memory of Paul persecuting the church brought him shame or embarrassment. Maybe he'd rather the past wasn't the way it was. And yet still God used it to show more clearly his generosity and his transforming grace. And this is what the gospel is. It is a story of grace through and through. That by grace in Genesis, God promised that he'd rescue his people. By grace, he chose Israel. By grace, he sent Jesus to die for our sins and to be raised that we might have hope. Amen. Friends, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel, for this narrative of redemption and restoration. We thank you for Jesus. Um, for sending him that he might die for our sins and be raised, that we might have life. Lord, we pray that as we continue to live as if this were true, live into this truth, that you would make us bold in proclaiming it to the world around us, and that your spirit would be encouraging us, especially in times like these, um, where a lot of us are suffering and a lot of us are facing lots of different kinds of hopelessness. Father, we pray that you would encourage us, be pointing us forward to resurrection. And Father, we pray that you would do this all for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.